You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to Smart Sex, Smart Love. On today's show, I'm talking about the transformative power of pleasure with my guest, licensed psychotherapist, media personality, and author, Shadeen Francis. Known for her signature brand of warmth and humor, all of Shadeen's work is inspired by her commitment to helping people live lives full of peace and pleasure. Beyond orgasms and sex, Shadeen believes pleasure is a necessary part of well-being. So let's discuss why pleasure matters so much and why personal privilege is so difficult for folks to recognize. Welcome, Shadeen. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I'm very glad to have you here too. I, you know, as I, I, my listeners don't know, but I have had the pleasure of interacting with you and hearing you speak and present and talk. And I just was so taken by it that I, I was hoping that you would be on my show. So I'm glad you're here. Me too. So let's start with um, the first question of, of what brings you on here is why do you think that pleasure matters? Mm. So pleasure is one of my favorite favorite conversations. So I'm really glad that we're just going to start right there. Um, and hopefully everyone will humor me because I, I get very nerdy. Uh, so when I when I think about pleasure, I think that especially working with sex so much, I think when I say pleasure, people default to hearing me say orgasm. Uh, and so I, I want to be clear that while orgasms can absolutely be pleasurable, uh, when I think about pleasure, I'm thinking or speaking more broadly about the experience of feeling good, the experience of feeling good. And I think in a lot of ways, we've come to take that for granted, or we see that as the reward for living our lives in a certain way, living our lives well, doing the right thing, that the return uh, is feeling good. But actually, pleasure is hardwired into our nervous system, right? Like pleasure is a necessary component of our central nervous system. My background is in neuroscience. And so all things having to do with pleasure are typically lumped under the term reward. So that might be some reasons why we think of it that way, but that pleasure is considered a function of our larger reward circuit. And so that includes our limbic system, the parts, you know, that help us process our emotions, that store our memories, that facilitate our social connection, the parts that help us navigate, you know, motivation. And so pleasure actually provides us survival benefit when we consider that our nervous system actually requires that information, that feedback to know, okay, this is good. This is working. And it's fascinating that we continue to think about health and wellness without putting pleasure right at the center, right? That we focus a lot on pathology, but what I think we should actually be doing more often is tracking and centering pleasure. I love it. You know, we don't, I, what I, I really enjoy uh, as being a sex therapist is all the learning and all the transforming of words and different things. And, you know, people talk about being sex positive, but the new word uh, to also include is being pleasure positive. Right. And it's, it's odd because, you know, who is anti-pleasure? <laughs> like if you were to frame it like that, right? Most people would not be like, yeah, I hate pleasure. But so many, <laughs> right? But so many of us actually live our lives that way. We live lives that don't make space for pleasure. 
right? We create circumstances where pleasure is not possible or not easily available. And then I think when it comes to, you know, the work, you know, that a lot of us do, whether that, whether I'm speaking specifically to therapists or really anybody else, I think that there is a lot of ways that the absence of pleasure is so normalized in the way we do the work. So speaking as a, as a health professional, right, that I come from a model of pathology, right? And so, and so do you, Joe, right? That our, our work is really centered around like what is wrong and let's spend the whole, you know, 50 to 75 minutes, 90 minutes talking about the problem. And ideally the goal is to work towards pleasure, but we haven't talked about pleasure at all. That's so true. All of our work is centering pain, about centering displeasure, right? Where where are the opportunities for us to center pleasure, not just as this far off thing, but do we even track the pleasure that could be present today? And so thinking about the difference between a model of pathology and, you know, as the default, there's also the opportunity to take a salutogenic approach, right? So the salutogenic model is another medical approach that is really focused on the relationship between health and stress, right, through assets. So rather than focusing on just what isn't working, how do we improve our baseline? How do we increase assets like gratitude, like self-efficacy, like hardiness, like empathy, like humor, rather than only having to center these are the things that are not working? That is so true. And you're, and you're right. I do spend so much of my time with clients, as, as most therapists do, talking about the pain, talking about the trauma and the, the stress and not the pleasure. But I also notice, and what do you say to this about people judging other mm-hmm. people's pleasure? So sometimes people who don't, who might have a disgust response to some, like yucking someone's yum, you know, you've heard Emily Nagowski talk about like that. Yeah, yeah. Why do people judge each other's pleasure? I think we have a really hard time making space for difference. I think we struggle in general with nuance, right? That we live in a world where it is much easier to do either or than to sit with the discomfort that we do not know all of the things and that other people have different experiences of things than we do. So we do that on many, many levels, many, many layers. But in the case of pleasure, it can be so hard for me to empathize with the experience of you liking something I dislike because I cannot remove myself from my own perspective. Such that if you like something I don't like, is that a commentary on me? Um, Am I supposed to like this thing now? Are you going to want me to do this? Right. If we think about in the context of sex, right. If my partner likes something that I'm like, "Mm, I'm not into that. Right. Whether or not it is actually disgusting to me, like, am I now implicated in this thing that I don't want to do? And so, again, rather than centering the places where we do have overlap or prioritizing what what feels right here, what feels good here and making space for it, we very quickly turn to alarm because it feels really uncomfortable for us to have that disruption or our connection. It feels risky to feel like we might be at odds or out of community with the folks that we're trying to be close to. I really like what you said, right? Like I might be implicated. I, I've never thought about that before, right? So if you're validating someone else's pleasure, then what does that say about me? It's personal. Right. Or feels personal. It absolutely does. I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, right? But like if we're going out for a meal, I turn everything into food. 
So if we're going out for a meal and you're like, yeah, I'm going to have like a big old, I don't know. I don't, I don't enjoy bananas, right? I'm going to have like a smoothie with just like extra bananas in it. Like if I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And I'm like really excited and enthusiastic for you. Are you going to like try and share that with me? Like, are you going to try and like get close to me or make out with me after? Like, I don't want bananas in my space. I just want you to be fed. <laughs> right. And, and it, and it calls up for us again, this danger of what does this mean? What, what does difference mean for our relationship? And I think a, a really important context for us to acknowledge is that we are taught that differences are not fine. We're taught that. That's why desire discrepancy, which is literally the most normal relational experience you can have to people who are different people wanting different things like that is actually absolutely normal. But clients come into our offices and it's a crisis. It's a crisis and they feel isolated and they feel alone and their relationships feel like they are in jeopardy for something that literally everyone is experiencing at least some of the time. But we are not taught that it is okay to have difference. That's so true. And obviously we're seeing so much of that. Uh, We've always seen that so much of that in our offices, but in the world too. Can you speak to how pleasure is related to social, social justice and maybe even define social justice for some people that don't understand what that means? Yeah. 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 And I think that's a, that's a beautiful segue into that question. Um, Right, so social justice to me, and lots of people have lots of different definitions. Social justice to me is any action that we take to ensure that people are able to participate in the world with with safety, right? Some folks move that through to freedom, and I think that is really important, right? I start with safety and and grow from there. Um, And so being able to ensure that people have fair access to the world, to safety in the world, to resources in the world, um, is is a really big undertaking, right? So there are folks who do social justice work as their full labor, right? Full-time labor, because we live with so many hierarchies and imbalances in this world. And so how it relates for me to pleasure and to my work, think about who doesn't get to experience pleasure, Think about who has a more difficult time right, accessing pleasure in their body right, or the experience of pleasure as they move through the world. We can name any number of identities, right? For example, thinking about women in particular, right? So let's, let's look at the lens of gender. There's all sorts of layers here, but let's look at the layer of gender. Notice what happens in terms of gender. So we have an orgasm gap right, that most men in heterosexual relationships are having orgasms almost every single sexual experience. And that is not the experience of women, right, that they experience, they experience orgasm less than, at, a, at a rate that is, you know, or at, as a gap that is bigger than the wage gap. And we're willing to march for the wage gap, but we don't march, we're not marching for the orgasm. We should right? be. Right. I would love for us to, right? And so we just acknowledge, like, we acknowledge that women's bodies have this narrative of being complicated, 
right? Like, oh, the orgasm gap exists because women's bodies are complicated. Well, no, women's bodies are only complicated because women's sexual pleasure has not been a priority, mm. right? Like we, we went to the moon before we mapped out the clitoris, right? Like, like, like think about that for a second. Like we were able to figure out astrophysics, but not how to make a woman orgasm. Can, can you imagine that, right? That the average person feels like more confident you know, understanding like niche math concepts that you would never use or like how to like change oil in your car. But the vast majority of adults are interacting with biological hardware that they don't understand on their own body and on their partner's bodies. It can be, it, for me, I have to be honest, I haven't, I've only started thinking about it more recently for about women and their sexuality. I haven't had to as a gay man, as a right. man. But it's infuriating. I remember watching Oprah uh, in one of her last few seasons. She had a sex therapist on, uh, Laura Berman. And Laura mm-hmm. suggested, I don't know if you remember this episode. I'll never forget it. I, I don't know why. I was kind of shocked. Um, she suggested that um, we give adolescent girls uh, vibrators so they can get to know their bodies. Because what's happening for teenage girls is getting together with boys. Boys know their bodies. They've discovered their penis. They're using their penis. So everything's about the boy because she doesn't know how to navigate him to help her with her. And um, Oprah's audience was outraged, including mm-hmm. her Gail. I don't know if you remember, Gail called in and was, was like mortified. And I was mm-hmm. like, how is this mortifying? This is, would be an important thing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we really worry about sexualizing young people. Um, and we forget that people are sexual and people start young, <laughs> right? Like if, if, if many of us were to be honest about our sexual experiences, like think about the timeline at which you started to notice your own body and have questions about it. Think about the point in time at which you started to be curious about sex or curious about development, right? Even just think about all of the times that you are interacting with your body, whether that's about hygiene or sports, et cetera, et cetera. And so whether or not you include a tool, sex education is important. Sex education is important. And we don't worry in the same way about sexualizing young boys as we do girls. And, you know, in the context or a conversation of gender, right, that we have entire genders that are completely marginalized and othered, right? Folks who exist on the gender binary or outside of the gender binary, folks who, you know, have genders that are fluid or that change, people who identify as trans, right? That we don't even get to come to understand their experience of the world because most people are not expecting to encounter anything that is really different than them. And so as we think about like what, how pleasure is related to justice, the push from my lens is always how do we create a world that makes more space for more people to feel good? Right? And, and, and that's, a, that's a big undertaking. But I think even just asking the question is a meaningful step for mm-hmm. us to hold ourselves accountable that there is a role that all of us can play, whether you are a sexuality professional or not. Some of the ways that we talk about pleasure or hold pleasure in our own lives matter, the ways we affirm and make space for pleasure in the people that we're connected to. Do we care about our partner's pleasure? Do we care about our children's pleasure? Do we care about our coworkers' pleasure or the folks who work under us, air quotes, under, right? You know, and 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 just keeping those things, keeping those things in mind, remembering that pleasure is the experience of feeling good and doesn't have to be sexual in specific but knowing that pleasure is a necessary part of our well-being, right? You can't be 
healthy if you like how can you say that you are healthy if you don't feel good mm-hmm. if you don't feel good then you're still unwell and a lot of us have have settled for living a life where we are unwell god these things are like all these things are so uh th- thought provoking in and of themselves you know you have to like uh, people probably have to re-listen to this uh several <laughs> times taking what you're saying can i ask you what would you say the impact of power is on people's sexuality hmm yeah, so these we don't live, you know, lives in isolation, right? That we didn't just like man, you know, manifest this whole structure. I'm sure that for many of us, if we were to think like, how would we design like the lives we live? Um, we would very quickly, you know, come into contact with all of the systems that you know impact our lives, right? The easiest one to think about is like work, right? We have responsibilities, we have labor that we do in order to be able to, you know, afford things in life, right? And that comes easier on to some of us than others, right? And so if we think about all of the identities that we hold, that unfortunately we live in a world where all of these identities are placed on axes and hierarchies, such that some folks have more power than others, or there are some groups that have more power than others, right? So thinking about identities here, we already named gender. We could talk about race. We could talk about religion. We could talk about sexual orientation, we could talk about ability, right? Physical ability, right? We could talk about neurodiversity, right? There's so many identities that we could consider here. But in the case of, you know, having power over, you know, sexuality, we can think about a couple of layers, right? Like who gets to have agency over their own over their own bodies? That's one way we could track power, right? So, for example, trans folks need to have permission, right, for, you know, gender-affirming surgeries. However, the cosmetic industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that the vast majority of folks do not need you know more permissions to for example have a breast augmentation or a chest augmentation right that most people do not need to get you know signatures from a, a psychologist or a therapist in order to pursue that right who feels like they can advocate for themselves and have boundaries who feels safe showing up as who they are sexually in the world, right? Who feels seen and understood as a sexual being? Who feels good, you know, in the, in the sex that we're having, right? That how power will run as undercurrent in all of our relationships. And I don't know that we are always thinking about what power actually feels like in an exchange but if sex is an exchange an opportunity for pleasure between a person and themselves or a person and another person a person and multiple people right that we can also track power by thinking about consent so i like the planned parenthood acronym around consent um and i, I use it often because it's food it's fries uh <laughs> the acronym acronym is f-r-i-e-s right freely given reversible informed, enthusiastic, and specific, right? That if we have those criteria in mind, we are more able to actualize consent, right? In a sexual experience. And so if we think about the role of power, if we have a power imbalance, how do we say that, you know, my participation was freely given, right? If we have an imbalance of power, I might be feeling coerced. Right, whether or not you're being aggressive with me, do I actually feel like I can say no to you? Right, what if this is an what if this advance is an employer and I'm worried about my job security? 
right? Is my participation uncoerced? We can't, we, right? It becomes harder to say so, right? Do I have the chance to change my mind, right? So if I'm in an exchange and I feel like another person has power over me, if I change my mind, can I readily say so? Am I informed, right? Who gets to have all the information, right? Think about, you know, a, a few folks in my practice have been talking more about stealthing, right? So that's, you know, when a person removes a protective barrier without telling another person, quite often it's a penis haver removing a condom mm-hmm. without telling, you know, the, the partner that they might be having penetrative, penetrative sex with, right? That's not informed consent, right? That's a power imbalance. Totally. And so when, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go. I was just going to say, so if we think about all of these layers, right, power influences our choices and it influences the choices we feel like we can make. It influences how people relate to one another. And so if we're talking about making space for people to feel good, we also have to take into account what is my relationship to power, right? How powerful do I feel in this exchange? How powerful, how much power do other people think that I have in this exchange? And how do we negotiate in a, in a way that allows us all to feel like we have access to make person-centered choices that really honor what it is that we need? I was thinking about in the gay male community, I, I'm hearing younger people come in my office saying, the guy last night I had sex with tried to pause me. So they don't call it stealthing, stealthing. They mm-hmm. call it meaning he pulled out, took his condom off and went back in and, mm-hmm. and you know, transmitted uh, HIV. So it, it's terrible. It, that, that's totally a power position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Do we disclose, right? That's a power negotiation. Do I, if I have a diagnosis, right, do I disclose that? Well, if I have all the information, I have power. Folks might also be acknowledging that, oh, that other person has power because if I share this information, they could reject me, right? Or if I am not out in some sort of way, either around the diagnosis or around my orientation or whatever, around the behaviors that I might like to practice, right? That, oh, that other person has power if they could out me, right? And make a disclosure that I don't want, that I'm not ready to make, right? And so we see that power, right, is going to influence how we show up in behavior, Right. And so it, it is worth something it is something worth us being explicit with ourselves about so that we can navigate the world in ways that actually feel honest and in you know calling in our integrity. And then as providers, us really taking into consideration that we have to do that with our clients also. Yes. If we're hoping to help our clients experience more pleasure in their lives and in their relationships they have a relationship with us around sex. We are not being sexual with them, right? But right that, that it still holds true that, you know, we, we have to think about the role of power in our relationships. Can you speak a little bit to um, personal privilege and in maybe um, why it's so difficult for folks to recognize? And I just want to say one thing before you do, because mm. it helped me so much. It'll probably stay with me for the rest of my life. When we were talking, you were talking about it in one of our classes at Modern Sex Therapy Institutes in the SAR, and you said privilege is uh, when you don't wait, wait. Oh, damn it! I, I have. I always think it to myself when you don't even know, like you're unaware that you have it. You never. When someone says, "Well, I never thought about that before," or "I never had to think about it before," you said that can be an example of privilege, and that yeah. rings so true for me. So, could you explain more? Yeah, yeah, we will be very aware of the things that we struggle with, 
right? We will be very aware of those contexts in our own lives. And so it's easier for us to notice power imbalances in which we are experiencing, you know, otherness or marginalization or feeling oppressed or hurt or harmed. It is really difficult for us to notice when those tables have turned because folks don't often name it and we struggle to also be accountable to that. It's really hard for us to hear that we have harmed someone because that's not the sort of person or people that most of us want to be. Mm -hmm. And so there is privilege in us not having to consider that, right? There are a lot of folks who will never know some of the ways that they have created harm because they're not paying attention to it because it doesn't personally impact them or the ways that we contribute directly or indirectly ways that we are complicit in harm. And so, you know, to, to reference, you know, the, the conversation that we had had, um, you know, earlier through the SAR that when folks are, you know, naming a concern or really upset about something and you're like, that's not a big deal. Like that, that, you know, why do people care so much? I think that's an invitation for us to actually be curious about that. Right. People don't, most people, you know, are not, are not manufacturing this, right? People aren't just getting, you know, feeling hurt for the sake of it, right? And so can I get more curious about what harm this person is experiencing because they're likely experiencing it on an axis where I have lots of privilege, right? So I'm a person that while there are challenges and struggles, right, pains and discomforts in my own body, right, I have a, I have a body that's mobile. And so there are lots of ways in which the cities that I have lived in, right, have felt accessible because I can access them. Yes. However, there are lots of ways in which these cities are really not accessible. And getting to know more people and having different experiences with my own body and health with my own family, realizing that, you know, for example, the place where I live, the train station is right there. And I'm like, great, this is super accessible, except there's no accessibility platform on the train. And so anyone who cannot walk up and down a flight of stairs cannot ride. Those little moments paying attention to who gets excluded. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we, we won't always see it because we're not going to have every single experience in the world. Right. And the things that feel good to us make sense to us. And the things that don't feel good to us make sense to us. But it's really hard as we were talking about earlier for us to understand those experiences from someone else's point of view. But part of this work is do we make space for that? Can we make space for curiosity? Can we make space to learn from each other? And that starts with one caring, (laughs) caring about it. And, And to the next stage is listening. Right. Can I listen to people and believe them when they say that this hurt me? And if we care about justice, right, then we have to be thinking about pleasure or else what are we working towards? We can't just work away from, you know, the things that hurt. Like, where are we going? And that requires us to then also be really invested and interested in what is important to other people. That's our pleasure negotiation, right? That's the negotiation that feels hard and like desire discrepancy, for example, right? Like how do we take both of our experiences of what feels good and what doesn't feel good and create something that is mutually pleasurable? We, I could keep talking uh, forever with you because I just think you're so clear and, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, concise with the way you speak. 
What was the last thing before we have to end that you would want the takeaway for our listeners from, from what you just shared with us? Yeah, I, I would love for this to just inspire more, you know, questions and more conversations for folks. I, the, the conversations that I have, I, I don't necessarily show up with lots of answers, right? And that's sort of a byproduct of being like a Gemini millennial middle child. <laughs> I, I just carry lots of identities that like to stir things up. But I think, I think the best thing, I think the best thing about, about all of those positionalities is that the hope is that they incite some level of change. I think that we move through the world with really good intentions and trying really hard and working really hard. And I think that it can just be really difficult to continue to have an active awareness and an active curiosity. And so I would love for folks to be thinking about what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my own life? How can I bring more attention to the role of pleasure in my work? And how can I notice my own power to affect change? Thank you so much. I think you answered a question I've also had about why it's so easy to listen to you and and how you make me think. You you do invite questions. You do make people think, and it's not threatening. It's just it, but it's so powerful. I think the way you do it is so powerful that um, I just want to thank you and thank you for being on the show, Shadeen. Mm, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So uh, if you enjoyed my show today, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And also follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Joe Court. That's D-R-J-O-E-K-O-R-T. I'll see you next time. Take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on JoeCourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.